Hey guys, welcome to Veritas. If we haven't met yet, I'm Emily. I graduated here from Mizzou in May of 2018, and I came here on staff with Veritas shortly after. I'm excited, also nervous, but mostly excited to talk to you guys tonight. I was talking to a friend the other day who made a pretty bold claim that love has never been both simultaneously undervalued and overvalued as today. I mean, think about it. Our generation grew up with both Disney princess movies that promised us a happily ever after, and also the invention of Tinder, which promised us endless opportunities with zero commitment. Never have we ever been so confused about finding the right person. Promises of love, sex, and romance are all around us. We see it in movies we grew up watching, songs we sing along to, books we read. We are inundated with promises of finding the one or our soulmate. I did a little digging, and I decided to Google soulmate just for kicks, and I compiled my favorite of the over 65 million results that came back. This first one that'll show up is a tweet. It says, what if you met your, your soulmate, but he loved to clap when the plane lands? This kind of reminds me of that game, uh, Perfect in Every Way But, and you make up some elaborate, bizarre thing that someone has that may or may not be a deal breaker. Like, okay, she's perfect in every way, but she has eyeballs as teeth. Or he's perfect in every way, but, but I guess, claps when the plane lands, which I didn't know was a huge pet peeve, but as I've talked to people, I've learned that it is. I guess enough for this person. Another one, find soulmate, swipes left in hopes of finding a hotter soulmate. Or my personal favorite was a quiz I took. It was titled, in all caps, this terrifyingly accurate quiz knows who your soulmate is. Now, this is the kind of content I would have fallen hard for in seventh grade. I would have taken it very seriously. For the record, I did take it, and my results came back. Um, my soulmate is apparently 5'11", and he has green eyes and blonde hair, which, if you know my boyfriend, Nick, he's none of these things. <laughs> Bummer, sorry. In all seriousness, we, as a culture, we look to sex and romance to give us the same sense of meaning we should get from faith in God, even sometimes making the person we're in love with God. And this isn't just out there in culture, it's right here too. You see, as Christians, we can say that Jesus has redeemed us, and yet we can look to a significant other or the promise of one as the end all be all this side of heaven. We can buy into the narrative that dating and married life is somehow better than singleness, even though Jesus is a picture of human flourishing and this side of heaven and he never married. But I so get it. I was single all of college and I certainly remember feeling looked over and less than honestly, as I watched my friends get gassed out on dates and I never did. I thought that when someone desires me in that way, then some of my insecurities will go away. Then I'll not feel so overlooked or lesser than my dating or sometimes even now my married friends. Or maybe for you, the idea of romantic love kind of makes you want to vom internally. You may not be putting all of your hope in romantic love, but 
maybe for you, you just long for a solid group of friends. Or maybe even just one good friend. Maybe you yearn for the love and acceptance of your parents, a sibling, a boss, or your professors. We all have a deep longing to be loved. And, and that's not a bad thing. That's actually a good thing. God created us to love and to want to be loved because ultimately that points us back to him. But, and this is a question we'll come back to tonight, is where are we looking for love? This summer, we're going through the series Not Good Enough, and we've been looking at people in the Old Testament who are just that, not good enough. But despite that, we see time and time again God stepping in and using them to bring about the culmination of his story. So tonight, we're going to look at the story of Leah, who, if you're not familiar with the story of Leah, buckle up. It's about the closest we can get to a daytime soap opera. And just a forewarning, we're going to be digging into the text a lot tonight. Um, some context before we drop in. We're about to look at Jacob, who you may remember last week from Kermit's talk. And he has just agreed to work for his uncle Laban and stay with him. And his uncle Laban has two daughters, Leah, who's the oldest, and Rachel's the youngest. And we pick up in Genesis 29, 15. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. So sweet. So here we have Rachel, who, the younger daughter, who the text tells us is very beautiful. The author tells us she has a lovely figure, which means what you think it does. She has a nice body. Her name, Rachel, is a Hebrew word for female lamb. And then there's Leah. Leah's name is a Hebrew word for wild cow. Big bummer. And Leah, we're told, has weak eyes. Now, it's debated as to exa what exactly this means. Some scholars say that by weak, the author means that they're dull or not as beautiful of eyes. And some scholars say that by weak, the author actually meant that they were fragile or broken, like something was wrong with them. But regardless, we're told that Rachel is very beautiful, and by contrast, Leah is not. In all seriousness, Leah probably has grown up her entire life in the shadow of her younger sister. Comparing her looks to Rachel's evident beauty, her body to her sister's desirable figure. Can't you relate? Maybe for you, it's your older sibling, a friend or a teammate, maybe even your friend group to someone else's friend group. Even if you don't know firsthand, you can imagine what Leah feels. And what's more, Jacob comes along and falls deeply in love with Rachel, practically at first sight. He wants to marry her. And this goes against not only the custom at this time to marry off the oldest daughter first, but also the custom to marry for status instead of romance. This is actually one of only two places in the entire Old Testament that we see anybody marrying for love instead of status. 
So we see Jacob is going against societal pressure to marry Rachel over Leah. He's jumping through hoops. But let's see how this wedding goes. Remember, I said soap opera, buckle up. Picking up the story in verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. I love that. Like, did I not mention that before you decided to work for me for seven years? Oops. Finish this daughter's bridal week. Then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah, and he worked for Laban another seven years. So there's a lot there. A few things to note. In verse 21, we get a glimpse into Jacob's desperation. This sentence is unusually vulgar, not only for back then, but also now. Imagine saying to a father, even today, I can't wait any longer to have sex with your daughter. Give her to me now. We see, I mean, it's really crass. We see how badly Jacob wants to be Rachel, married to Rachel. Another thing, I know you may be thinking, how in the world did Jacob really not know it was Leah the whole day? But as was custom, she would have been veiled all day, and at night, when it was time to take the veil off, it would have been dark. Remember, this is well before electricity. So there would be no string lights at the reception. There would be no lights on inside, no street lights coming in through the windows. It would have been really dark. And so when Jacob wakes up, and it's not Rachel, it's Leah, he thinks he's going to bed with the one, right? The beautiful Rachel who is going to fulfill all his desires. The woman he waited seven years for. And he wakes up, and it's Leah. Before we move on, I want us to sit for a second with how Leah must feel in this moment. The author doesn't tell us how Leah reacts, only how Jacob does. But imagine for a second that you live in a society where your value is determined only by who you marry, and in Leah's case, if you marry, and having children. So, in conjunction with what society is saying, your father gets worried that the family name might be ruined if you, as the oldest daughter, doesn't marry. Your father begins to think that he can't marry you off unless he tricks someone into it. So he does. He disguises you as your younger sister, who you spent your entire life comparing yourself to, and he gives you to Jacob to marry. And maybe... Maybe there's a part of you that hopes that in the morning, when he wakes up and he sees that it's you, that you'll be enough for him. But you're not. You're not enough. Have you ever been there? Where have you gone to bed with the hope that maybe this will satisfy you? Maybe this will make you feel loved and cherished. But 
woken up in the morning with the reality that you're not. I realize that this question might stir up some shame for some of you. There's even some people in this room that are probably still in hiding. I wanted to say to you, you're not alone. There are many people in this room, myself included, that have done some embarrassing and regretful things in hopes of feeling loved, desired, cherished, and fulfilled. Maybe for you, your story looks a lot like Leah's. You turn to love and romance and sex to feel worthy and valued. But no matter the girl or guy, the fuzzy feelings always seem to fade. And even if you're dating a great girl or guy, you still feel this consistent nagging to feel validated by them. Or maybe for you, this looks like drinking to get drunk or drinking underage. You think that you're more fun with alcohol. And so to kind of numb this desire of fitting in, you drink. And maybe in the moment you are the fun guy, but you still don't feel seen or known. You actually kind of feel lonely. Or maybe you turn to pornography because you think that this time that you'll feel satisfied and that satisfaction will last. But instead, you just feel ashamed. Or maybe you feel yourself being constantly tossed around by what others are thinking and saying about you. You put forth this image of who you want to be perceived by, but you're exhausted of pretending. You don't feel known by the people around you, and, you const and constantly doing things for the approval of others, it just feels empty. Let's continue with Leah's story. We pick up in verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord has heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I've borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, at this point in the story, Leah is literally a debt to pay off so her husband can sleep with another woman. But the Lord saw the unwanted, overlooked, and unlovely wife. The Lord saw that she was not loved and he loved her. And he blessed her by giving her the blessings of children. We aren't given a whole lot of Leah's thoughts up until this point, the way that the author actually tells us how Leah is thinking and feeling is through the names of these four children. So let's look at those. The first son, she gives the name Reuben, which is a Hebrew word for see. In verse 32, she says, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. You can almost hear her desperation in that. God, you have seen me. Thank you. 
please let my husband see me too. The second son, she gives the name Simeon, which is a Hebrew word for hear. In verse 33, she says, it is because the Lord has heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. Again, we see her simultaneously praising God for the gift of a son, and yet also pleading with him to change her circumstances, that God would move in her husband to love her back. The third son, she gives the name Levi, which is a Hebrew word for attach. We can think of it meaning something similar to our word for unite. And so in verse 34, she says, now at last my husband will become attached to me or be truly united with me because I've given him three sons. These words jump off the page for me. We don't see Leah thanking God at all for her child anymore. We only hear her deep longing to be loved. Where are you looking to be loved? Where do you look to in hope of receiving a sense of worth or value? Is it a, is it a significant other? Is it a friend or your parents? If you're really honest with yourself, is it God? And then something interesting happens. We see it in verse 35 with her fourth son, Judah, which is a Hebrew word for praise. And it says, so she conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. Notice, the author has changed up the pattern here. There is no mention of her hurt or her longing to be loved by her husband. This little detail is so easy to skip over, but I think it's so important. Leah is no longer asking God to change her circumstances, but rather she is seeking him in them. Leah accepts her wounds as part of her story. You know, I will never be loved by my husband in the way that I want to be. I will never have my sister's looks or my sister's body, but God, I will praise you. So what changed? In this moment, we see Leah choosing to reorient her life from looking to Jacob to find fulfillment to looking to God to, from being enslaved by her longing to be loved to being freed by the truth that she already is loved. And it's interesting. Let me just geek out a second with you here. After Judah, she brings four more children into the world. And let's just look at their names. Gad means good luck and fortune. Asher means to be happy or blessed. Issachar means there is a reward. And Zebulun means gift. Two things happen with the birth of Leah's fourth son, Judah. We see God meeting Leah right where she's at, in her unwantedness, in her longing to be loved by her husband, in her unloveliness. He meets her and he sees her and he redeems her story. The second thing that happens is that once Leah makes peace with her circumstances and with her story, she changes the orientation of her life. She accepts her circumstances, and instead of looking for her husband to satisfy her anymore, she looks to God to do so. We see that so clearly in the naming of her children. The orientation of her life has changed. The story of Leah 
it wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. And while there's so much we can glean from it, I have time to talk about three takeaways. The first one is that we all have an innate desire to be loved. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's a good thing. It's how God designed us. However, it shouldn't take us long to realize that nothing and no one in this world can love us the way that we want them to. Their love will always come up short. This gap, so to speak, between what we want from people and what we want people to, how we want people to love us and what they are actually able to give to us, this gap moves us to look for a love that transcends anything here on earth. Where are you looking to be loved? Maybe, maybe you've been single for a really long time and you just wish someone would notice you and want to delight in you. Maybe you're in a relationship and you're looking forward to marriage with some real rose-colored glasses on. Like, once you get there, you will have arrived and life will be easier and more secure. Or let's just take romantic love out of this for a second. Maybe more than anything, you just want, you, had, you wish you had a friend group or even just one good friend who gave you a real sense of belonging and like you were seen. You just want to find your people. These aren't bad things to want. However, a relationship cannot make you feel loved in the way that you were created to be loved. Marriage won't make you feel fulfilled in the way that you ultimately want to be. Friendships cannot bring ultimate happiness or contentment. A lot of the time, when we finally get these things that we so badly want, those desires are still there. And this leads me to my next point. Takeaway number two is that God does not withhold good. Psalm 84:11 says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. No good thing does he withhold. If having, I mean fill in the blank, a significant other, a spouse, a friend group, if those things were good for you right now, you would have them. God knows the desires of our hearts, and he doesn't keep these things from us just to keep them from us. As sometimes backwards as this seems, he doesn't give us certain things for our own good. In seasons where I struggle to see the purpose in my present circumstances, this verse is my mantra. God is good. God does not withhold good. I can trust him. If he is withholding something from you right now, it might mean that that thing won't bring ultimate good for you. Maybe it's not best for you right now, but maybe it won't ever be, especially if we're looking for it to fill a desire that only God can. I'm not saying that it's bad to want or ask for things. We just read how Leah asked God to move in her husband to love her back. But ultimately, Leah learns to trust God in her present even in unchanged circumstances. We too can ask God to move in our lives, and in fact, we should. But 
If what we're praying for takes the place of God, we need to check ourselves. We serve a good God who works all things together for the good of those who love him in his good timing. He does not withhold good from us. Are you willing to trust that God knows what's best for you? Are you willing to trust in God's timing over yours? Because, and in the end, we learn our third takeaway, that God's love is the only love that can ever satisfy us. We see this so clearly in the story of Leah. You see, we never see Jacob love Leah back in the way that she so badly wanted him to. We are never told that Leah hit 40 and suddenly became more beautiful than her sister or that she aged well. In fact, in the chapters following, we see this dispute between Rachel, Leah, Laban, and Jacob. We just see the collateral damage of this. But from what we're told about Leah, In the chapters following, she lives a full and long life, a joyful one even. How? Leah stopped looking for love in the wrong places. She made peace with her circumstances, with the wounds of not being loved by her husband and of living in the shadow of her sister. And with God's help, she found strength to praise him even in unchanged circumstances. Where are you looking to be loved? What relationships in your life are you looking to provide meaning, identity, purpose, and fulfillment? Is it a significant other? Is it in your friends or your friend group? Your professors or your boss? Is it God? In closing, I wanted to look at something found in Matthew 1, the genealogy or the family lineage of Jesus. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Did you catch that? Judah is in the line of Christ which means God chose Leah to bring forth salvation to the entire world. God looks at Leah, who is rejected, unloved, unwanted, unlovely, and unseen. And he says, her. I want her to be the mother of Jesus. Not because of what she did or who she was, but simply because this is the very picture of who, how God chose to save the world. God chose to save us through Jesus, who he was rejected, unwanted, weak, and unloved. As the music team comes up, I wanted to end on this. The story of Leah is more than a cute story of God rooting for the underdogs. This is the gospel. God chooses the weak, the unlovely, the unwanted, the rejected, and says you. I choose you, not because of who you are or what you do, but simply because I love you. I see you and I love you. This love is the only love that will ever satisfy us, that will ever be a sturdy enough foundation for us to place our identity on. Amen.